Welcome to another episode of Racial Equity in Richmond, a component of the Richmond Racial Equities Essays Project. I'm your host, Ebony Walden. I'm asking folks from, from all walks of life in Richmond two basic questions. What's their vision for racial equity in Richmond and how do we get there? Today, we're joined by two friends of mine, Latasha James and Christopher Rashad Green. I just want to thank y'all for joining us today. And why don't we just start out by your name, what do you do in the day, and how long you have lived in Richmond? Latasha, would you mind starting? Not at all. So my name is Latasha James, and during the day, I am an educator. I'm a teacher. I'm an English teacher, and I have lived in Richmond my entire life. I'm a lifelong resident. And fellow North Sire. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher, go ahead. Good morning. My name is Christopher Rashad Green. I'm a community organizer by day. I'm working in the Petersburg Tri-City region. Uh, I've been in Richmond for over 25 years. Um, most of that in the East End in Churchill. And now I reside on the North Side in Barton Heights. Okay. I didn't know you lived on the <laughs> North Side, Christopher. So this is the, the North Side Connect here. Lovely. Um, y'all are not that far from me. So why don't we jump right into our conversation today. So before we get into the inequities of Richmond and solutions and y'all's opinions on those things, I like to really get to know people. What's their perspective on their own lives? Like, why did they get into this work? So my first question is just about you. Can you tell us a pivotal moment or experience in your life that has led you to your current work, however you define it? Whoever wants to start. Ladies first. Okay. <laughs> well, I think um, when I when I received the questions, like e, I think I'm going to steer toward um, the community and the neighborhood instead of my day, my 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 day job. Um, so I think I don't know if there was one moment, but there were a lot of little moments, and I think I did a lot of reflection um, from the time I purchased this home. Um, in Battery Park versus when I purchased my first home back in 2004. And at the time, I didn't realize like how blessed and fortunate I was to be able to afford to live in Richmond. Um, I just thought, you know, you're told go to college, purchase a home. I just thought that I was doing what I was supposed to do. And now that I'm living through gentrification, I just realized on the modest salary that I made in 2004 and 2009, when I purchased my second home, I was able to afford a house, you know, and mm. So I guess, and I'll just be transparent. So in, in 2005, uh, I was right out of college. I was working for the Richmond Voice newspaper down on uh, 2nd and Clay Street. I was making like $25,000. I mean, it was such a modest salary. And my then spouse and I, he wasn't making very much either because we were still interning and doing all these things. But we were able to purchase our home on First Avenue. And um, before I go into purchasing my second home and how much I made at that time. I also appreciate the transaction of buying the house. And what I mean is we were young and black, right? And the house um, was an older um, gentleman. He was black as well. And his wife had just passed away. And it felt like our grandfather was passing it down to us. It just meant something to us as a young black couple receiving the house from, you know, this older um black man. And he was telling us about his life and what it was like even living through, you know, redlining everything else. Um, and then our realtors were black. 
so we had two realtors and one of the realtors actually lived right across the street from us. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah. And then the other realtor lived on a few streets over on third Avenue. Um, and they took so much care, you know, with us and it just, I don't know, it was just a very valuable experience. And that's why I like representation matters, especially with home ownership, not just the fact that we could afford it on our modest salary, but the whole transaction was just, um, and I actually forgot about that until when I bought my uh, second house. So in 2009, I was, I was a teacher and everybody knows <laughs> teachers did not make a lot of money. So I think at that time I was making about 38,000 and I bought this house by myself with that salary, $38,000. And I just realized that a lot of, and this probably will go into the next question, so I won't get into that too much, but I just realized that a lot of millennials and people who are like ready to buy homes now aren't able to afford it. And I, and I'm dealing with like helping them navigate this whole process. And I just realized, you know, that it was, I was just so fortunate at the time to be able to um, have those experiences and especially be able to invest in the community that raised me, you know, where I grew up. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And just to say that you've been involved of the your time there in the neighborhood association as well so grounded in that community work and in building those relationships before christopher rashad green goes how do y'all know each other christopher how did we meet christopher i'm glad we met. let's see was it civic association doing civic engagement okay uh was around the brooklyn park initiative okay some things i know uh, Willie Hilliard was somewhere in this also. Yes. Uh, we run a council. Yeah. So I have yeah, y'all in my mind together, but I couldn't remember why that is. I, actually, Tasha, I met you at a neighborhood meeting that I was doing in the community that Willie put together around. At his barbershop. Yep. At his barbershop. I was trying to engage yeah. the neighbors of the Brooklyn Park community. Yeah. So, Christopher, I know that you have an amazing story. What were some pivotal points in your life that led you to your community work, your organizing work? Um, to, to the work you do today. Yeah. That's an easy one. It's really two pivotal moments. Uh, they're really connected. One was back in 1975, uh, being a high school honor roll student. And I was at that point that I entered the prison, the school of prison pipeline. Mm. Uh, I actually say the most pivotal moment that time was at a young age, I started using heroin mm. and I got high for the first time. Uh, actually, yeah, I'm being transparent. I actually started shooting dope at the age of 15. Wow. Uh, so that first time I got high really was a form of escape mm. uh, from the pressures of being a young black man living, you know, living in poverty, but not really having a lot of self-esteem. So I gravitated to that life. And I, it was 1975. I can still remember the night that it happened. Uh, so from that point on, my life really turned dramatically. I entered the juvenile justice system not too long afterwards. And so fast forward 40 years and, well, not even 40, uh, the next pivotal moment came after everything I went through, 40 years of incarceration, homelessness, drug addiction, uh, dysfunction. Uh, in 2016, I had my voting rights restored in Richmond. And it was the first time I had ever voted in 30 years because I hadn't been engaged in the process. You know, I can say the last time I voted, which is kind of funny, I voted in New Jersey uh, was during a Senate election. And I went to the polls and I voted. So I came home. My mother asked me who I voted for. So I told her it was Millicent Fenwick, uh, 
white woman. And she's like, well, why'd you vote for her? She's Republican. I was like, she is? I didn't know. And that was actually the last time I voted up until 2016. That really told about voter education as mm. well as voter engagement. I didn't even know who I was voting for. I was just voting because she was a woman. I just figured she was better than the white man that was, she was running the game. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, you know, really illogical, but it's on 2016 when Governor McCullough, former Governor McCullough, reinstated my voting rights. Uh, all I can say is like, it was a, I felt empowered. Mm. That was the word that resonated with me that whole year while I was empowered. Now I got to vote in the 2016 presidential election and we all know how that ended up. Uh, but I did go get to vote for our mayor at that time. And uh, yeah, I've been voting ever since, been engaged, but that was a pivotal moment. And it really showed me my life path. And so ever since then, that year, I've been actually organizing around voter rights, around criminal justice issues. It just opened a whole new door and it, did, it really helped that the organization I was with at the time, it really made me like, I want to say the poster, poster boy for criminal justice reform. Yeah. They actually said that I was complimented the fact that I did help change the face of criminal justice here in Virginia. Wow. And that was a great honor. That's really pleasure. powerful. Yeah. So yeah, that was a terrible moment, getting my voting rights back as cynical as I was and, and, and not being involved in the process. So I just, it opened a whole new world for me. It showed me my, my path. Yeah. So that was a pivotal moment. Thank you. Thank you. And thank y'all both for being transparent. I just love to hear people's stories about how they got into the work and why you're why, right? So we could all have our, you know, opinions and our ideas, but those are rooted in whys. And when I understand your why, right, I understand your perspective, your platform. So I thank you all for being transparent. So let's jump into it. You all have particular vantage points, not only from your neighborhood and community work, but also from your time living in Richmond, the longevity and the work that you do in a day, what are, from your standpoint, one or two of the big in, biggest inequities that you see here um, in our city, either from your vantage point as a community member or from uh, the work that you do every day? Christopher, you can go, you first, go first. first. Yes, you can go oh. first this time. Well, I think there was some inequities in Richmond, in the Richmond region, and I think Latasha and I kind of concur on on a couple of them, but I'm going to education, excuse me, housing. Uh, housing is one. Is that something I think Latasha wanted to speak on? But housing and education are two of the biggest uh, areas of inequities I see in Richmond. Um, housing, and many of you probably already know that you know, I have a housing crisis here in this region. Uh, and Richmond has been ranked, you know, at the top of the eviction cases, the rate of evictions. I'm sure some of you know that you are second in the country as of several years ago uh, in eviction rates. And currently, I work in Petersburg right now, and their their even their rate of eviction is even higher than Richmond. So it's a regional issue too. Yes. So housing and education, uh, especially for poor and you know folks living in poverty, trying to get a, a decent education. There's a lot of issues around our schools and our school systems. I've seen and making them more accessible for children and making sure that children are protected, mm. uh, having protection for children. You know, there are some in place, but there's, there's still, we have a long way to go. They're, they say, you know, they want to embrace this philosophy of no, loud, no child left behind, but our children are still 
failing. It's still being funneled into the prison pipeline. So that's an inequity I see. Christopher, can you just talk a little bit before we turn on the topic? What do you mean by protection? Like protecting our children? Like, talk, say more. Well, we know, especially in our black communities and our poor communities, that children are faced with a lot of environments and with social uh, factors that stunt their development, especially trauma. You know, trauma is the number one cause of why a lot of children don't develop those developmental skills. And so we know in our school systems, we have protections like IEP protections, certain mm-hmm. protections that we are, are allowed through our school system. And that's in place. But even that, you know, uh, is not sufficient. And it's going to take a, a big movement. It's going to take the community movement and demanding that our educational system provide these protections. And also protection is talking about uh, what they call SROs, or police in schools. Mm. Uh, that's another thing that has evolved. And that goes all the way back to the 80s when the school prison pipeline really exploded. Yeah. And our children were really vulnerable. So it is those protections, making sure they're safe, making sure they're provided, you know, the basic educational rights of children and not determined by where they live, their zip code, or the amount of money the district has. It should be a level playing field. We can't think because Stony Point and other counties, they had the tax base, they had the funding. Uh, but even in, in that, in Chesterfield, you would think, you know, their school system would be great. But even our black children out there are being targeted. You know, it's small, but you know, you know, and just and uh, the disparity. Even though there's not a large percentage of blacks in Chesterfield, it's mostly black children being being held. You know, being suspended and facing disciplinary action. So it's, it's all the way across the board. So when I say you know education, yeah, those are the type of things. Those protections. Uh, so we really have to protect our children. And like I said, it, it feeds right into the prison pipeline, mm. incarceration. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for for explaining that. Um, to us. Natasha, what are your thoughts? You can either build upon Christopher's or or come up with your own. Um, that's funny, because uh, that's exactly <laughs> those two were. Uh, well, one, especially housing, because housing and then race, obviously, they go hand in hand. And I just feel, yeah, I feel like it's a very deliberate it feels to me that it's a very deliberate and violent removal of black spaces in Richmond. Mm. Um, Speak on it. Uh, oof. So y'all, let me tell you, so I don't even know where to start. So I'll just say this. Um, I'm nosy. Okay. So sometimes I can be a little nosy. So I'll go to (laughs) (laughs) these homes, these, these homes, right. That are, that are listed in the neighborhood that are Mm -hmm. three, 300, 400, half a million dollars now, um, which is double, triple what I pay for mine. So I'll go uh, into these homes and something as subtle, something as subtle as reading the specs of the house. Um, and I know like some people will say, you know, I'm being dramatic or whatever, but I don't care. This is how I feel. So when I look at the specs um, and it'll, um, it'll list the neighboring schools, right? And I've seen on a lot of information on the new houses, they will list open high, which is on Brooklyn Park Boulevard. Well, the actual zone school is John Marshall. And at first I was like, Tasha, you're tripping. But then I thought about it. I was like, no, I think that is absolutely deliberate, right? John Marshall is a predominantly black school. Mm. That is the actual zone school. Open is a specialty school um, that you have to apply to get in. Um, And I feel like that John Marshall was deliberately left off of the list to 
um, attract a certain demographic um, or, you know, what's listed on these new homes. Also, it'll it won't talk about the history of Northside and Battery Park um, or the black businesses on Brooklyn Park Boulevard. What will be listed to attract new buyers is usually a neighboring white community, a pro- close proximity to the fan, close proximity to other uh, neighborhoods. But they never list um, what makes the North Side or Battery Park what it is. And that is the black residents, the black businesses. Um, so things like that. So they'll it's list Boho or, <laughs> or, or yeah, 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 yeah. Kombucha or something. Yes, yes. So um, and I think that's very deliberate. Right. So it's like the language that's used. Um, And then so I have a couple of friends who are ready. They've prepared and they're ready to buy a home and they know they're not able to purchase one here in Richmond now. And they've sent their kids to Richmond Public Schools. Um, And they they've even tried like moving to a different uh, rental property. So I won't list I won't say the specific name of this uh, new development over here in the north side. But when she went to the website, the home page, you know how they have the stock photos None of the stock photos had people of color in them. And she had to keep scrolling. And finally she found like, you know, um, a black woman buried down the bottom. But even that matters, you know. So it's like these small things um, that are very... Erasure, I hear. Yes, very much so. And th- and these these things are small, but it, it really does matter. Um, and that's what it feels like. And even when Christopher was talking about, um, you know, even the evictions, you know, where are these people going to go if we're evicting them? Or even if they're not evicted and when they become home buyer ready, where are they going to go? They're not going to be able to afford to live in Richmond. And that, you know, that's, Richmond that's is becoming whiter and wealthier. And we already know that per the stats of uh, Richmond 300 and, and anyone else. Um, and so it just feels, like I said, it just feels very deliberate um, and it feels a bit violent. Um, and it bothers me every single day, especially since, you know, I'm I'm living through it. And you, I go back to the first question when you were saying like the pivotal moment, I'm like, after 11 years of being here and I say, there's only five black families left on my block out of, mm-hmm. out of 20 homes and they're all older. So I know they're, you know, at some point going to pass away and who is going to replace them. I just came back from people that can buy $400,000 houses. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and look, let me just say this. There are some outliers. Cause I know people are going to say there are some non-white, obviously new residents, right? Those are the outliers, but the, the majority, majority of the new right. residents. Yes. And, um, I was in, I just, I was in Denver last week or I just got back from Denver. And the first thing I did when I went is I tried to find the historic neighborhood, uh, the black neighborhood. So I found this black tea shop and I asked the owner, I said, Risa, where, where, where are the black historical neighborhoods I can go and visit? And she said, you're actually in one. And she said, it just doesn't look like it. And that that was very shocking t- to me. And it was a reminder to her how important it is because she listed on Google. It listed black businesses. And I told her I was grateful that I found her because I wouldn't have known this particular neighborhood was even black. And I am I feel like that. I don't want Richmond to become the black spaces in Richmond to become unrecognizable like I had in that moment last week. So, yeah, I love that. So. Um, this, this project is, is also part of a larger project where we're going to have essays, but my essay was actually on how do we have black and brown spaces in Richmond rooted in identity and ownership, right? And so a lot of times I think that that's rich, Richmond has such a rich history of historically black neighborhoods 
whether, you know, particularly neighborhoods of prosperity, right? This was where we're living is like the first streetcar suburbs, right? And so after that wave moved out, it was like the first black folks that could buy houses. Um, and, and just like your street, my street, there's someone who's been living here for 40 years, 42 years, 28 years are my older like um, neighbors. And so how do we keep that richness even though our, our cities are changing, and I think that you could still have integrated neighborhoods where the history, the ownership, even the arts, culture, everything um, is still rooted in place. Um, I think that's really a really important point. So how do we not have this tale of two cities, one that's white and richer and one that's black? Because we, we know from, like you said, Richmond 300, we've lost in the past 10 years or so. 3,600 Black homeowners, and that was largely due to the Great Recession. So it's really a concern that we don't whitewash our city. There's so many great things about Richmond, Black, White, in between. How can we highlight the stories of them all? So this gets into our, our next question. In the interest of time, I want to make it a two-part question. So one sentence, what's your vision for racial equity in Richmond? And then highlight, you know, you get a magic wand. How do we get there? How do we achieve it? the vision that you set out for us. So whoever wants to start, I'm sure you have great ideas. What's your vision? How do we get there? Christopher, you've been silent, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna call on you. Thank you, thank you. And really the vision I, I've had for Richmond is focused, it's in criminal justice circles in that arena since that's where I worked. But I came up with a concept, excuse me, I didn't come up, I learned of a concept called transformative justice which really means transformation of our communities. And so I had this vision of creating a reentry program, but not just a program itself. It was more of a, uh, a community-based idea around providing services for folks. And it ultimately went back to, for me, is like if a person makes a mistake, is incarcerated, and they get released, they should be able to come home to their community and have access to housing, to employment, to mental health services. You know, it shouldn't be a struggle to come home and find all these things that you need to get your life back together. And I'm thinking over the past 30 years, 30, 40 years, you know, I've experienced that reentry. <laughs> I'm a repeat offender. I've been in and out multiple times. So I thought, you know, I know that there's for people to transition back into our societies from incarceration, from institutionalization, it's gonna take a community effort. We can no longer rely on institutions you know, we have to demand of them what we, you know, as taxpayers, taxpayers and registered voters, we can always demand that they do what they're supposed to do as our leaders and our servants, but it still ultimately falls on the community. So in my vision of Richmond, and this is just me, I had this vision when I first got here of being able to sit everybody at the table, you know, religious faith leaders, politicians, community members. Uh, that was my vision to see everybody come to the table, all our black leaders, because when I came to Richmond, it was primarily black. And I said it was such, you know, I thought with all the history and the folks that were here in the organizations, we should be unified more. So that was my vision of Richmond is more or less getting past the, the political aspect because we have a lot of click, you know, there's um, a lot of, uh, I won't say nepotism, but it's just real clickish. There are certain sides, there's a lot of, it's not, there's a lot of partisan sides on it, I mean, because you have folks in, in, in leadership. And with me learning more about research, because I actually am a researcher with BCU Health, mm. and all the research, all the things we've done for the past four decades, 
we're still at the same place. We're not really making a lot of, we're making headway, but for most black and brown folks and poor folks, and, and Latasha talked about it, uh, the lack of home ownership, which is supposed to be part of the American dream, yeah. owning your own home. But people like me don't have access or there's a lot of barriers in place. So my vision would be having a, a coalition, basically community-based of organizations coming together and advocating for, for, our, for our folks. That is my vision. Like I actually started a re-entry program through uh, my nonprofit, um, charitable nonprofit organization, Freedom Unlimited. And I want that Freedom Unlimited to be a base or a hub and part of, and have all these community partners together, mm. all these re-entry organizations, social service organizations, uh, individuals like Latasha doing literacy programs, you know, a community base, basically that it takes a village mindset. You know, having that concept, it takes a village. We've got away from that. And so I think that is something we should do, get back to that mindset of taking care of ourselves. Yeah, I love that. And I hear you say multiple things, like just throughout the course of our conversation, right? Of like prevention and protection on the front end so that our children are equipped not only with education, but protections that will keep them from entering into the criminal justice system, right? But things happen and people make mistakes. So it's also support when they come out so they can re-enter our society as full on citizens and they have the support they need to survive and to thrive. And we need sort of this multi-sector coalitions of people around maybe both of those things of like, how do we support our children in our neighborhoods, um, in our communities and our families so we don't have this pipeline. And then when things do happen, there is a coalition, a pipeline, an ecosystem of support so people can come out and get their lives back on track um, and just add to the to the flourishing, not only of their own lives, but our of our community. So thank you for that. And then your reentry program is the is a heart of that. Go ahead. Yes, just I wanted to say that, especially talking about schools, the schools should be a hub of our communities. You know, there should be a lot of activity around our schools. But you know, in our communities, it's it's not like that. You know, we don't have active. It PTA. used to be. Yes, yes, you're right. And so we don't have active PTA members. And, and community, so it really should be a hub where a lot of activity is, and then bringing that, tying that into the community and taking care of their needs, like our parents. You know, a lot of folks say it's not so much the children, you have to look at the parents sometimes and see their yeah. situation and their environment. So if we're not taking care of that or addressing that, you still, children are going, in Petersburg, last year in the summer session, they had 200 children, this year is 700 in Petersburg school. They had 700 oh, wow. children during summer. That's huge need. Yeah. They didn't want to be home. Yeah. Well, I don't blame them. They want to get out of the house. So this this support and protection, what about you, uh, Latasha? So what's your one sentence vision and maybe one or two things we can do as a community or specific aspects or sectors of the community to get there? So um, going back to just what you said when um, you were talking about having um like diverse neighborhoods without you know this removal of you know um, black residents um i just think about um what can we do where there's affordable home ownership in every neighborhood right and i yeah <laughs> and richmond is super segregated it always has been um i i didn't have a real conversation with a non-black person until i was 16 and that's because i 
got a job in Carytown. And one of my friends, I think she was like 24. She was 24 before she had a, a like a actual real conversation with uh, a non-black person. And that's because she started working at the Omni Hotel in Chaco Bottom. And so for 16 years, I mean, that's a long time to live in a city and not. Um, and so but that's just that's just Richmond. Right. Um, so I don't even know how to change that or go about that. Cause obviously we know historically, um, it was designed this way. Um, but also again, going back to having affordable home ownership for not just the people who are moving here, but the people who have been here and want to stay here, um, the working families. And I don't know if this can be done, but can there be, can we regulate, can there be a percentage or a certain amount of homes that, uh, can stay within a certain income bracket for these families. I don't know. Um, I would also like to see, we have a lot of uh, housing activists, right? And I appreciate their work. Um, But it would really be nice to see um, the people who are in office to speak for us to attack these issues more than the activists do, right? I feel like the activists are always the ones leading the mission. And then the, the people who are, who are elected to speak for us are coming in behind them. I feel like it should be the opposite. Um, and uh, there are a few other things, but I think those are the, the, the biggest uh, for me. So I hear, I hear you say, so the policy piece, right? So policies yeah. that we have in our community to make sure affordable housing is spread throughout our community. And again, not concentrated, but in every neighborhood. And that's a policy piece, right? So how do we do that? Um, and the second policy piece is that our elected officials are actually visionary and ahead of the game in that and not just responding to what activists want to do, but have a vision and say, we know this is an issue. We're trying to go hard after these issues. We want to work with advocates and activists, right? And obviously there's speaking truth to power and, and power doesn't do anything unless, you know, there's community pushback. So I think those are dynamics, but just having more visionary leadership and saying, we don't have to wait for somebody to tell us to do what we know we need to do um, and get fire under our, our butts in order to do. Right. Absolutely. So in the interest of time, I just wanted to thank y'all both for coming on, but also just give you kind of a last kind of, opportunity. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to um, add to the conversation? Anything you want to say in closing? Latasha, you were like, you, you have a couple other things. Um, do you want to throw some things out there? What, it, what, it, what do you want to say in closing, whether it's highlighting another strategy, um, underscoring another point we had as part of our conversation, or even introducing a new idea that you want our listeners to think about as we try to co-create a more racially equitable ritual? So, oh, Christopher, go ahead. Well, thank you, Latasha. Well, in closing, thank you again, Ebony, for having me. Uh, and again, thank you for uh, recognizing Freedom Unlimited Incorporated as a reentry, uh, as a uh, charitable nonprofit. And with the vision that was established in 2011, excuse me, 2010, down in Richmond City Jail. And it's actually coming to fruition this year, we incorporated, excuse me, last year. And like I said, I just want this vision of bringing everybody, bringing people to the table. Uh, and again, uh, especially in all walks of life, and I really like piggyback on what Latasha and what you guys were talking about, policy things, is like once we get our community together and 
we all get on the same page, then we can actually push to have these policies, then we can demand to have these things changed. Because as we talk about housing, the housing industry have their lobbyists and their and their um their folks who are pushing to keep these these policies and these processes and keep us away from home ownership. So it's a fight we have. So it's going to take all of us. Uh, but Freedom Unlimited is going to address basically empowerment. We want to empower community members. Basically, I see how it needs to be done based on my life story and the life story of others. We have a great team around us. We have great. It's, a, it's just we have such a wealth of, of community members of leaders in this in the city. It's just a shame that you know some of us do are not able to access some of these things. Um, I walk the streets of Richmond every day, and I just see where we could make it better. When folks are just falling through the cracks, young and old. You know, you look at the news every night. You always see black faces on the news. Young black men. Uh, last night, so I I want to really stop that. You know, we talk about the violence. But it's never going to stop until we as community members actually, you know, take a stand and come together and sit down. We need to start having these conversations, real, real conversations around that. And I'm willing to join that. So thank you for having me again. Absolutely. Thank you. What about you, Latasha, in closing? Um, I agree, Christopher. I feel um, the civic associations uh, can play a pivotal role in that. Um, and I, I will say Battery Park has, um, we have, I don't, I think we could do more, but we have attempted to have like honest conversations about a lot of things. But I think because um, you already have this built in audience kind of right. And you could just reach out to more people. Um, but I would also like in certain communities to reach out to the rental property. So it's I'm not I can't speak for everyone, but on Chamberlain, we have like the rentals right now. They're under renovation. And we talked about this before, but I feel like that population is even left out of the conversation at times. Like, what do we do with like these pockets of people? Like you were saying, Christopher, whether it's education, whether it's housing, when we talk about uh, the neighborhood, we're usually talking about the homeowners, right? Who live here. We're not talking about the, the people who live in the apartments that's within the um, district and like what happens to those people. Um, and we've had a conversation about that before, you know, at our civic association, how to, because a lot of the things that Christopher is addressing um, is happening on, you know, Chamberlain. There's a lot of uh, substance abuse. I mean, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of crime there. Um, yeah. So that, so certain pockets of Richmond within neighborhoods, I would like to see be included in when you're talking about conversations and transformative justice, like uh, Christopher was saying. And um, yeah, and that's it. And I would like to see, I, I made a joke to you about this, Ebony, before, but like when we see all these beautiful murals and all these brown and brown faces on buildings, and I, I told Ebony one time, I was like, I feel like there's more brown faces on buildings that are in homes over here. Mm. That. And I, and I, I would like to, that to balance out. So, yeah. Um, I call that the, the form of the diversity, but not the substance, right? Of like, mm. are there, or can, and I love murals and I love, right, you know, I have my own little mural tour going around Richmond and seeing <laughs> all the, I got this black mural tour of Richmond, but are black people living in those neighborhoods? Do they own those buildings? Right. Do they own those right. businesses? So I think that's a key that we don't become a place that looks like it's diverse, but people can't live here, um, can't own here, or still don't have that sense of, 
empowerment and ownership, which is the deep work, right? That's the transformative, equitable work. So thank you all again for, these are really, really important. (laughs) These are really, really important issues. And I just want to end on the point where Christopher was saying, it's going to take our whole community to come together and to solve it. So this, this series really is about promoting conversation so we can move to collaboration and then towards innovation, right? So this is just starting the conversation, getting the ideas out there for the people that are living in the neighborhoods, on the ground, doing the work so that we can move towards collaboration and innovation. So I thank you all for your ideas, for this conversation, for taking the time out to be on your show. And for the, those listeners, until next time, this has been Racial Equity in Richmond. I'm your host, Ebony Walden. And we will continue to dialogue with Richmonders around their vision for racial equity and their solutions for how we get there. Thank you all. Thank you.